I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. Invest in people and culture early. You know, we always had a pretty good culture because we cared and we're decent people, but we didn't know how to recruit. We didn't know how to help people develop better. And I always wonder, wow, imagine if we could have done that a lot better in the early days. That would have really helped. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Miles Glashier, co-founder and co-CEO of Focus Software, is my guest today on Scaling Up. Now, most listeners would not have heard nor read about Focus because this is a story that is largely unknown, but it is a story that certainly needs to be told. 20 years ago, an Aussie backpacker in London falls into starting a bootstrap business, selling on-premises business intelligence software. Fast forward 20 years, and Focus has carved out a niche to serve manufacturing and retail customers around the globe. Having grown consistently year on year, and now with revenues north of $40 million and 180 employees across three continents all without any significant external capital, this is a scaling up story of boundless hustle and drive to make every single dollar count. Focus is loved by customers and employees alike, and it's now at a major inflection point on the cusp of securing a significant round of funding that hopefully you will indeed read about. And when you do, you can understand and appreciate all the hard work and lessons that have been poured in and learned over the last two decades. For any interested investors out there listening, TDM has started a new podcast of sorts. We've been uploading earnings calls from US public companies into Spotify to allow everyone just to digest them more easily. Simply search earnings season in Spotify, or you can just follow at earnings underscore pod on Twitter, and you'll get regular updates of all the new uploads as they happen right throughout the next earnings season. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can reach me on Twitter as well, at Eddie Cowan. Welcome to another episode of Scaling Up. And for those that have been listening, there's certainly a sub-theme to this series, and that is to tell the stories of wonderful Australian companies that are truly global success stories, but are relatively unknown and probably largely underappreciated. You know, we're talking about substantial businesses that have grown into highly profitable operations from the ground up, but without the usual fanfare, without the press releases. And today is no different, and it's perhaps one of my favourite Australian success stories, and it is Focus Software. And I have Miles, co-CEO and co-founder with me. Focus is a business intelligence software that was started 20 years ago, bootstrapped from the ground up, at the start, you just set out to take away the paper pain for distributors and, and their salespeople has grown into a, a global business. But I'd, I'd love to hear that founding story. Yeah, fantastic, uh, Ed. It's, a, it's been a, an honour to be on the Scaling Up podcast, I, I must say. So, yeah, I mean, I, after sort of getting out of university here in Sydney as a, as a failed biotechnologist, I ended up backpacking around the world and ended up in London, having run out of money in two weeks of my, my backpacking uh, trip around the world and figured I had to get a job and earn some money quickly. And uh, I'd spent a lot of time 
working in uh, in hotels during my university years, ended up running a, a crazy backpackers in Brixton in southwest London, which in the late 90s was a pretty dangerous wild place, not the gentrified place that it is today. But at that backpackers, I, I met a guy called Paul McGee, who was one of the real pioneers in the enterprise resource planning space. ERP is, is software that companies use to run their business. Think Myob or QuickBooks, but but maybe on steroids, a bit more functionality. And so after working with him for a year, he pulled me in to work a little bit in this ERP space in in London. And, and what we saw at the time, and this is sort of the late 90s, is that particularly for the companies we were working with, these manufacturing, distribution and retail companies, the business people, particularly the salespeople in those organisations, were really struggling to access the data they needed to sell more to their existing customers because these companies had lots of products and lots of customers and it was very difficult to identify the link and cross and and upsell opportunities. And the reason they couldn't do that is they didn't have access to the data. They'd walk into a big air-conditioned room and the IT guy would roll out this big elephant toilet roll of paper or maybe they had what was becoming a business intelligence tool then but it was very IT-driven and someone write a report for you. So it was a real struggle. And so we felt that's where we had the opportunity to solve that particular problem around helping people get access to the data they needed to sell more. And from that point, as you mentioned, it started in in southwest London and you've now got offices around the world. But each time you've opened an office, it's been you that has gone to that new market and hustled. And I'm sure that's come at some personal cost. Yeah, so, well, it was great fun to be honest because I think when we when I started out and I left, you know, had this idea to sort of I wanted a global business because I wanted to travel, right? And that was it. That was essentially the strategy as far as it try and get a business that's that's global. But as you get older and you have families, that that's definitely the case. But it, you know, from that first point in in the UK, I, I flew back to Australia pulled my brother in who was a computer programmer and you know we knocked out the first version in about three months we flew back to the UK you know and it sold like hotcakes but you're right as soon as we had it up and running in the UK I brought it back to Australia um, which was you know at least I'm from here we knew a lot of people and then as soon as we had enough money I went to New York at the height of the financial crisis and this is the first time it got really tough right because I, I literally arrived by myself in New York City which wasn't the best place to set up a business, but it's where I wanted to be, so let's start there. And the height of the financial crisis, didn't even know lawyers or accountants, and basically just started picking up the phone and cold calling distributors within 50 miles of of, uh, of New York City. And you know, the first three phone calls I made, I actually got an appointment and I signed up the first three meetings, like, this is gonna be easy. And then you know, the GFC hit, and it was a really tough, I think I thought sold six customers in the first year, absolutely killed myself. Um, but I had no doubt I was going to succeed. You know, I was going to do whatever it was required. And over really six or seven years in New York, we built up a really good solid base of people paying us on, you know, on recurring revenue. And you were one of the, the few that saw that this SaaS business model was so strong, high margins. And so it allowed you, despite being bootstrapped and, and capital restrained, to be profitable from essentially day one. Yeah, very much. And we were very, I was very lucky. I wish I could claim this, but really Paul McGee, my co-founder, was really the brains behind this. And he'd sold as an ERP software for, for years. And, you know, he got fed up of the pressure that you had of having to sell these big deals. And he was very keen. He had a lot of real estate. He loved that idea of just sort of that recurring revenue. And so we really in the late 90s, early 2000s, 
before most people were doing it, we were selling software on a monthly subscription basis, which which made it really easy to sell, right? Because I'm saying initially in the UK, give me 500 quid a month, 1,000 pounds a month. Gosh, you can't afford that. So it made it really easy to, to sell and you're running from there. And so you mentioned that it started in, in these verticals of manufacturing and retail, and that's really the space that you still own. You know, it, it's a software that has great customers across the world in the mid-market in these verticals. And yet a lot of your competitors have gone wide. They're generic sort of BI tools. Let's talk about winning against these global competitors because this is a theme that I think sums up the ambition that you have been able to execute on. We're talking massive global nationals. You know, Tableau, I think, last year spent $400 million in R&D alone. And yet here's this Australian software story that is spending a fraction of that and yet winning deals consistently against them. There has to be some secret sauce here. Yeah, there is. And I've been thinking about that a lot, Louise, and there's no one ingredient to the secret sauce. There's some multiple ingredients, I think, that all come together uh, to do that. First of all is that very much fanatical laser focus on our verticals that we know well. We understand those companies and our staff understand those companies. And so we've got a product that's designed very much for their needs and what they're trying to access. But more importantly, we understand the systems that store their data, the ERP systems that do it. So we have not just integrations with those tools, but we have solutions out of the box that they can get up and running in no time. So what we're giving is a solution very much out of the box that they can go and customise, but where you're dealing typically with those big generic people that solve a problem for anyone, which are fantastic, those Tableau's clicks, Power BI's wonderful tools, right? But you're starting from scratch when you buy them. You need a team of consultants or experts to build it for you over time. So you end up with this huge cost to try and get these tools up and running. And at the end of the day, what you still end up with is a series of reports or spreadsheets. Whereas with a tool like Focus, you've got something that is very focused for those particular users that allows them very easily themselves, the business user can drill down into the underlying data. Sounds like it's a great lesson of knowing how to win and sticking to your lane. Yeah, definitely. And we learned that around 2016 where we started swimming in multiple lanes. We thought, wow, this Tableau is a great idea. Why don't we just try to sell to everyone? We'll build it online. We'll put, you can just trial it and, and, and everyone will just buy it. And, you know, that was a horrible year for many reasons. And we very quickly refocused on that, got back to what we're good at and doubled down on, on that. You, you talk about go-to-market traditionally has been this direct selling you know, to the point that you were hustling the cold calls in New York City all those years ago. But now, as you've grown, you've realized there's benefit in partnering with some of these large global ERPs. And, and that sort of channel distribution has been really important in, in the last couple of years and, and moving forward. How do you think about pulling those go-to-market strategies so that they are working in your favor? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We, we sold direct for a long time and we worked out how to do it, but it was just, it's a lot of hard work and it was really hard to scale, particularly as a bootstrap business where you weren't putting in hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing and, and sales behind it. And we came across these ERP partners um, because we're selling in their space quite a bit. And we were lucky enough to, to sign up a huge number of their customers, which generated some interest from them. And so we had one or two of them, people like Epicor, probably the world's fourth or fifth biggest ERP system, uh, people like MEM and automotive and so we're lucky enough to get some partnerships up and running and I guess the way we see those is 
it's a lot of hard work. At first, you have this wonderful idea. You think, yeah, it's going to be easy. We'll just sign up the partnership and they'll sell it and they'll market it and they'll implement it and we'll just count the cash. And in reality, it, it doesn't work that way, right? In reality, it has to be a true partnership almost a marriage for it to really be. It's not about just getting a sort of referral partnership. Are you really a partnership? Are we each a part of each other's strategy? Is there a line in our strategy and your strategy that has our company names in it? Is there, and there's some numbers attached to those. And that's what we learn over a lot of hard work with those initial partners is trying to focus on how we can help each other around the strategic opportunities that we've got. You talked earlier of the benefit of working deeply in these sort of verticals is you have that domain expertise as to what the customer want. And that plays out in deep customer love. And every review that you read of, of Focus of Software talks of how easy it is to start and how much they love using the tool. Our mission is to help people feel good about data. And I guess love's a pretty feel-good feeling, right? And it, it really is, I think, if you talk about where we really differentiate ourselves amongst the big guys and, and any other players in the market is... There's this special love that it creates. People love using the software. It makes them feel good. And that's a really strong thing. Emotion, I think, is the fundamental thing that drives decisions at the end of the day. And you're never going to lose a customer if they're in love with you, hopefully. And so I think it's it's focusing passionately and relentlessly on ensuring that we can that we can generate and, and maintain that love, again, through being innovative on the product side, but also on how we look after them and support the customers as well. And it's not easy to do. You're talking about millions of data points, big data really helping these probably non-business people make smart business decisions. And, and to simplify that much the same way that Zero has done that for accounting is surely going to hold you in the hearts and minds of all your customers for, for years to come. Yeah, well, hopefully so. I mean, it seems to be the case that at the end of the day, yeah, more so now than, than ever, people need to make timely, accurate decisions and they need to do it often in a distributed situation alone. So they need tools to be able to do that and they need tools that are easy to use. And so I think that puts us in a perfect position to ensure that they are using us for another, who knows, 40 years in some way. You talked of the growth of your business being mildly constrained by being bootstrapped. By any measure, you have seen phenomenal growth from zero to you know over $40 million of revenue at the moment. But that constraint must have always been just in the back of your mind. You see venture capital pouring huge amounts of money into, into similar software business like yourself that then have the turbocharge growth. Did you ever look over the fence and think, I know we're doing this in an old-fashioned way and it's the right way for our business at this point in time, but I wonder how big this business could be if we just get the rocket fuel happening. It was very easy for many years because strategically we made the decision not to do it. We said we are going to self-fund. That was the strategy. And every couple of years we'd review it. We'd, no, let's stick to that. So it was really easy. We, we kept the blinkers on there, which, which may have been crazy, but we did. But then it was... Probably two years ago when Phil, my co and I really started to, to think about it and say, well, gosh, you know, what if, what else could we do? But at the time we realised we had to get a really good leadership team in first. So we, we did that and then over a, a year or so we got our ability to get that leadership in place which gave us the time to think. And then we sat down, so that was 18 months ago, we sat down and said, okay, what could we do if we remove that constraint of just funding the business ourselves? 
and we got pretty excited and we've been on an awesome ride since of, of what we could potentially do now with you know a bit more rocket fuel to, to sort of fire the rocket a, a bit faster. And that's not to say that the company hasn't been good to you. It's, it has been profitable. You've obviously reinvested a lot of that, but you have built a very successful business with that constraint regardless. But I am curious as to, as a leader of the business strategically, how do you find the natural growth rate for your business when you are funding it yourself, when you do own every dollar that's coming in and also coming out? Yeah, um, probably you've, you've, you find it on a Sunday when you're completely shattered and you're just all doing too much, right? And I guess that can happen when you are, maybe even more so when you're getting funded, I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. Um, I probably haven't thought about how you find the natural rate. I think you, for us, the culture is really important, right? And so it's meant to be fun and it's, it is fun and it is fulfilling. And it's, I guess, the simplest way that, that we find the natural growth rate is more often than not, am I saying it's not fun to go to work? And that's probably the point where you're going too fast or too hard than you can with the amount of cash you've got or you've made some wrong decisions and you need to look at the strategy and make some different decisions, I guess. And fun is one of your core values that we will touch on. But I want to talk about the technology itself for a moment. And it's, in a way, a, a tip of the cap to the durability of, of your business. But you have started a software business as a on-premises software deployment and then the private cloud emerges and now we're in the era of, of AWS and, and the public cloud. And I know that you're you know, in the final throes of a, of a lift and shift completely to AWS. I'm sure there's been a lot of stress at each point of these you know, macro technological shifts. And so very few people have seen all three in the Australian technology landscape. So I'd love just to start at a high level view. There are a lot of listeners who deeply understand software, but I'm sure there are plenty that don't. So maybe let's start with this last uh, shift towards the public cloud and, and what it has done for your businesses, the advantages of shifting to the public cloud. Yeah, I mean, the, the cloud, it seems so ubiquitous now for many of us, but of course, it, it's not. A lot of, lot of companies are still relying on software that's sitting on servers or on their computers. So if you're a, a personal user and you've got Word or Excel just on your computer, that's great, right? But obviously, you have to buy that computer, you have to set it up. If it falls apart, you know, you've lost all the data, for example. So, you know, what we're now seeing is everyone try and move towards the cloud, so they don't need to invest in the in the infrastructure to support whatever applications you're running. They don't have to invest in the people to support those applications. And they're also ensuring by being on the cloud that you're always on the latest release of both the underlying technology, the databases that you're using, but also the, the software itself. So you're not having to go through this old process where you have to upgrade every three months or six months and vet it, for example. You're always on the latest and the greatest of the tool you're using and on the platform as well. And that's a huge benefit in cost and in performance. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. I'm sure there's been a lot of stress, as I said, in terms of performing that lift and shift. And, and any software business that has been around for 20 years is always going to suffer what technologists call technology debt. The customer needing your code base to be as sharp as possible and up to date. How have you thought about that over 
now two decades. Yeah, I mean, we've been, as you say, through everything. We started off on-prem with some old database engine called DBI Sam, which a few old people will get excited that I said, but apart from that, you know, that's that's about it. And, you know, it went from on-prem local where we used to send CDs out to sales reps to get their monthly updates, for example. There'll be people listening that that blows their mind that there was software that was deployed by yeah, a CD absolutely. into a CD. Yeah, absolutely. It was a hundred, that was the way it was deployed. It wasn't even like the, the sales rep in the field, for example, would get a CD with the update of the software and the update of their monthly set of data with their new sales figures. And they plug it in and we did these wonderful wizards so that these big you know, fat-fingered salespeople could update the, the data and it was great. But we went from that to the position to obviously to client server, uh, which improved that somewhat to, you know, terminal services type applications to various types of cloud, however you want to describe them, to, to pure cloud with Rackspace, which had been phenomenal now to AWS. And in the mix of that, the big change probably was the move to mobile and that and that really happened as much as people talked about mobile for years it happened when the ipad came out in our world and i was in america and all of a sudden every president was walking around with an ipad so you had to go mobile and so the way we've approached it is we've just reacted quickly to be honest with the small teams as best we can i'd like to say that we were thought leaders and were way ahead of the game but we weren't we didn't have the budget to do that so when the ipad came out you know, we were probably behind, but then in six months, we made a decision to go to a certain technology and we built out the, the web version in six months and it worked. And that's still the, you know, some fundamentals of what's in there now. Um, the same happened with cloud. We realized we had to go cloud. So we got our ass into gear and did cloud in the quickest, best way we could with the small resources that we had. It's not too bad now. We've got a lot bigger teams, a lot more confidence perhaps than we had in those days. But it, it's just driven by market necessity, right, um, most of the time. I suppose the difference, though, with the movement to the cloud more recently is we've probably driven the movement. And like a lot of the software vendors are trying to move it maybe faster than the customers were because it's better for us if it's on the cloud. It's, it's cheaper for us to maintain and support you know, we got to a point where we thought, wow, we've got 1,500 customers. It's going to take us seven years to upgrade them all. But it's also far better for the customer. So I think we tried to really drive that, but very quickly the customers have followed on that. What I'm hearing is just deep strategic pragmatism, understanding what is required and, and moving heaven and earth to get it done. And, and that is deeply inspiring, actually, hearing it play out there are a few people who are as passionate about people and culture as, as I am, but you are a, a shining light uh, for anyone that wants to pop onto Glassdoor. I think your approval rating's 100%. The, the Glassdoor's at 4.9, uh, just ticked downwards from, from five. So I don't, I don't know what's happened there, but you constant winner of people and culture awards worldwide. And you know, we touched on fun as a, as a value, fulfilling and forever are the, are the other two. And what stands out about your values are they are short, very understandable, and I'm interested how they play out in, in practice. Yeah, culture is definitely something I'm, you know, I'm passionate uh, about. And, and the reason for that is I think culture drives performance more than anything. Um, but the values, you know, fun, fulfilling forever. The fun... Yeah, that came about because it was it was how the culture was probably a reflection of, of my values. But fun, 
to us at Focus is the work itself is fun. I love being here. On a Sunday night, I look forward to going to work on a Monday morning. And that's really how it plays out. It's never been about the perks because as a bootstrap company, there wasn't any, apart from maybe getting drunk together on a Friday night. That was it, right? So the fun had to be the no work. Yeah, yeah, no slippery dips. So the work itself has to be fun. I'm enjoying and having fun here. And yeah, we muck about and everyone has, you know, fun's different to everyone, right? But it has to be fun what we're doing. The fulfilling bit, the way that pans out, there's a nice counterbalance to the fun. So it's not that we're mucking around, but the fulfilling bit is, is it professionally rewarding? Am I growing and developing? Um, we ask people to say, you know, have I got a meaty, meaningful role? If not, why not? And then the forever bit is interesting. For some of our people, you know, they'll say to me, you're going to have to carry me out of here a box. I am here forever. And if that works for both of us, that, that's okay. But forever is more of a, from a personal point of view, they may not be here forever, but the skills they've learned, the time they've had, the experience they've had is forever. And hopefully, and I'd be just so proud if some of our graduates who end up running companies in the future, you imagine if they took this fun, fulfilling forever philosophy to those other companies as well, then that would be forever as well. So that's how it pans out from, a, from I suppose, a people level. It's nice to hear you explain them because it, I'm sure there are people listening who, who think forever. There's a, a shade to that that might not mean high performing. It might be once you're in, you're in, it's very hard to be out. So it, it is nice to get that context. Yeah, and I think to, to add to that, it's, you know, I had a, a new VP of sales join recently in the US and he goes, oh, I understand this fun fulfilling forever now, but at first I thought it was some summer camp theme. And, and the forever bit is actually the really serious part, right? Because it sort of says, well, if you want to have fun, it be fulfilling for our people, for our customers, for our shareholders, for our partners. If we want all of that, and we would like that to continue for the long term, however long, you know, forever is, um, you have to have the financial performance. That's the fundamental thing that drives the high performance. And for us, it can only be that if we grow and grow as much as we can and we're profitable. And so those two things are the counterbalance to those. So everything we have to do is focused on driving growth and driving profitability. One thing that is highly unique and it might've been strategic, I'm keen to, to understand this. It is certainly unique. You have offices now around the world and I wouldn't call them deep, software uh, pools of talent. We've got Orange in country New South Wales, Reno uh, in the States, Christchurch in New Zealand, Coventry for those that don't know, somewhere between sort of Birmingham and Northampton in, in the UK. But these have been shaped around the best people. So one person that you've found that needs to do a specific job and they have built out an office, you know, in some really quite random locations. Yeah, I think if you know, from a retrospective rationalization point of view, yeah, it's strategic, but I think it, it's just how it happened, right? And, it, and it's worked out. It's worked out great. I mean, we've added an office in Christchurch just recently, and we've almost got 38 people there, software developers in, in Christchurch. And, and that happened because the best chief product and technology officer we could find in the world was a great guy called Blair. And he was there and, and we've ended up building an awesome team around him and that's grown really well. Orange came about because, you know, Phil Dodds, my co-CEO, has a massive farm out in Molong and he had a small development team there. And that grew from four people to 40 people. Reno Nevada, we had a really great uh, customer experience um, lead in, in the US and she was based in Reno. We now have about 20 people there. Um, it's a nightmare sometimes, but, you know, I think... Um, you know, for the first 10 years, we didn't even have offices, right? So we're very used to working in a distributed type environment. It shows to me that great people can attract other great people. And so that strategically has probably actually helped you 
in terms of, of gaining talent into the business. Yeah, I mean, the culture has been our greatest recruitment weapon that we could possibly have. And I think about, across all levels, but I think about Phil Dodds, he doesn't have to work. He's been a very successful uh, software you know, CEO for a long time, but he wants to be here because he's fun. Karen Halewood, we got her, who's our chief people officer, we got her probably three years before we could afford her, but she came here because she just loved being here. Uh, Blair Cassidy's another one, Ange Kent, our marketing people. I think the culture has allowed us to get a lot of these great people maybe ahead of when we could probably afford them. You touched on Phil, your co-CEO, who's based out at Orange. It's a unique setup. You know, co-CEO, he's a professional CEO, you're a co-founder, your other co-founder, Paul's the chairman of the board. As a leadership triangle, how's that relationship evolved and, and how do you really maximise the impact that you can all have? Yeah, so it's evolved obviously massively over 20 years. I mean, it was predominantly myself and Paul McGee for the first you know, 10 years running the business and then sort of transitioned to, to myself and Phil and, and Paul running it. And then more recently, just Phil and I with, with Paul taking more of a, of a chairman's role. Um, you know, I think the dual CEO ones that, that worked, uh, it's probably getting more common now. I know people like Allbirds, who you'll know well, and, and at last, you know, good, good examples. But um, it's actually worked really, really well. So long, I suppose, as you've got people on exactly the same level that understand each other and have built a high level of trust. And I think it probably took Phil and I six or seven years to really do that. But now we know we're thinking the same and you can take any of us and we, or any person and we'll know that area of the business pretty well. So that works really well. Um, and then in terms of then involving you know, Paul on it, it's then working with the board effectively to do that. And how do you distribute the the roles and responsibilities in a, in a co-CEO relationship? Yeah, so again, that continues to evolve as, as we as we work out what works best. Um, what we've tended to do is we've got in our senior line of business leadership team, he's got sort of three or four people that will report to him and there'll be about the other six, I suppose, report to me. And that's terms of more of a performance and coaching type aspect. But what we actually do is we have every two weeks, we have a one-on-one with each of those line of business leaders that we're both we're both sitting on the other week we have a one-on-one just alone with them if that makes sense so you know that pretty much how it works out and we share it from there let's talk about the impact of covid we're sitting here early october i'm sure it's been a roller coaster in many senses for you the the last six months but there are a few businesses in the world that get direct insights into the impact that their customers are experiencing. And you would have seen firsthand, specifically in the retailing sector, the impact that COVID was having on your customers. Maybe just at a high level, you can discuss what you were seeing for the last six months. Yeah, you're right. I mean, firsthand, we had some really great access to, you know, talking with our customers relentlessly and also access to working with them on on the data um, across retail, distribution and manufacturing globally. And it was is a really different story within those those areas, and, and retail particularly is interesting, right? Because you had some people. Uh, we had a in the UK a major drinks manufacturer that supplies to pubs. Literally, their sales dropped overnight. What's interesting about those customers? We thought, oh no, they're going to call to cancel, ask for a rent holiday. They actually said, oh, we need. Can we do this? Can we, can we help with an inventory database? So can we look at a lot of other stuff? So we saw in in the retail space. A lot of you know, businesses overnight go to zero sales, but then we also saw a lot of other businesses, like another UK company that does ski helmets and bike helmets, see an impact on their sales, but move radically to ramp up their online business. And we saw how that happened. And again, that's a story we've seen really effectively through a lot of players. Um, in the distribution space, it's been very much, you can see by the type of products they're selling, right? You've seen our medical customers unexpectedly do well. You've seen people like your Repcos and your Bursons in the automotive side 
actually do really well because people want to pimp up their cars. You see a lot of things like that uh, where other people that are affected by, you know, tourism or travel, clearly not. So it's, it's probably as you expect. And what about the impact COVID's had on your people across the world, dispersed workforce, culture at the heart of everything you do? How have you managed to ensure that your business was still functioning as you would like. Yeah, I think the thing I, I think we're most proud of as a company is we've come through the other side of COVID, if we are on the other side, far stronger than when we went in. And that was really the aim. Um, financially, actually okay, we've financially um, have come through really well. But as an organisation, we, we were probably set up better than most companies do with COVID, right? Because we've been remote forever. But it radically improved our ability to communicate with each other. We moved to rather monthly meetings, daily stand-ups at the high of it or weekly stand-ups. So we communicated far more effectively with each other so we all have a better idea what's going on. The other big thing, I think, we've communicated relentlessly. Every single day during COVID, I was doing a recording, updating of what's going on, letting them know what was happening. So I think our role in that is, in the uncertain period, was just try to be honest with people. Um, and I think out of that, we've built far more trust. We've always been transparent but even more transparency and we've built huge trust out of that so I think that um, you know we've come out of that you know really strong. There must be now some risk in your mind that a lot of your people would be feeling burnt out and tired and you know are we through it who knows but this could continue to go on how are you thinking about what the next six months holds and, and your people? Yeah, I mean, talk. I mean, I was burnt out two weeks ago. Thank goodness the school holidays came across. I think you don't realise how exhausting this year's been emotionally and, and doing all the Zoom. So I think the, the approach we've taken is continue to listen to, obviously, government advice about what's going on. We're now investing more than anything. We've seen, certainly from our customers' perspective, now more than ever, they need to invest in their digital transformation. They need access to timely data more quickly than ever. So we're seeing people wanting to spend and get involved and, and, and spend money. So we, you know, how's it going to turn out? From what we can see in the three regions and the markets that we're in is just continuing on uh, doing what we're doing now, but being sensible about our investment. So we've been probably a bit more conservative than we would normally be. We're keeping cash higher than we would normally be because we don't know how things will change in, at any time. We talked about the bootstrap nature of your business, but you're also going through a really exciting stage at the moment and your first ever major fundraising 20 years on from starting the business. Giving as much detail as you're willing to give, what are the lessons or reflections to date of, of you know, we're in the middle of a fundraising round at the moment that you could pass on to other founders who might be doing their first fundraising? First of all, I say it's been awesome. It's been really, really awesome and, and maybe my advice is, do it earlier. I don't know. I'll let you know a bit later. But so it's been a really awesome experience. And because you've got some really smart investors, some smart people that are looking into the details of your business. Um, and that's great, right? Because every one of those, it's advice. You're learning how to run your business better. You're hearing from their experience all the time. Sometimes it's pretty cutting, but that's great because you can, you can learn and improve. So I think from that point of view, it's been you know, absolutely awesome. And we're really excited about know what we can potentially do the advice I give for people is obviously get the best team around you whether it's your bankers your finance team to to work with you that will reduce the workload but I found 
whilst I've loved it as it goes on, the, it's, it's hard to switch off. You know, this has been my business for 20 years. I'm, I'm so excited about the next phase, but you keep on thinking about it. And so probably I've been looking a bit, lot more at mindfulness and meditation just to switch off occasionally, to give yourself a bit of a break from, from thinking about and dwelling over what you could do here and there. You just need to switch off during the process, I think. Wonderful advice. And, and fundraising in the times of COVID undoubtedly is hard, particularly when cultural fit is probably at the top of your list in terms of investors and yet you're dealing in short Zoom meetings. How's that been managed from your point of view? Yeah, that's probably been the, the biggest challenge. It's been really easy in the early stages because you can have your little you know, initial meetings via Zoom in the US and in the UK and, and obviously even in, in Australia um, and they were fine. But as you go along, it's, it's really hard for both sides, right? Because it's important for the investor and for us to really try and get a sense of who are we working with and spend the hours to really ask those questions. So that's been a real challenge. And we definitely, there's a, a chunk of investors, you know, we had a huge interest, which was great, but you know, a number of them dropped off because at the end of the day, when we got to it, it was just really hard to make a decision because you didn't have, it was very difficult to make it happen during a, you know, owning a via Zoom. It must be an odd courting period, you know, almost you're after the perfect marriage, but you're dealing with marriage at first sight in, in, in many instances. Yeah, maybe that's a thing of the future. We're all going to be having, you know, relationships with people via Zoom only. And I think it's amazing how much you can achieve via Zoom. And it's been, for me personally, amazing in the, the last, since COVID, because I'm not in the UK, I'm not in the US. I've got far more time overall. I've got more time for myself, more time for family, because I'm not doing crazy stuff overseas. So I think that's probably the good impact over time. But it does make things like this really hard. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how that goes. There's one last question that I ask every successful founder, and that is if they could wind back the clock 20 years and give themselves one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, um, I don't know if you're in India and you're catching the train from... Uh, from New Delhi to the Taj Mahal, don't eat food on the train. You'll, you'll be wiped out for five days. Uh, you might know yourself better. But uh, the, the one bit is, is invest in people and culture early. You know, we always had a pretty good culture because we cared and we're decent people, but we didn't know how to recruit. We didn't know how to help people develop better. And I always wonder, wow, imagine if we could have done that a lot better in the early days. That would have really helped. And I think following on from that, involve your people and culture experts in almost every decision you make because everything's got to do with people right and they're going to help you make far better decisions for the growth of your business miles thanks for joining me on scaling up your story as i said at the top is one of my favorites and if ever a founder was to knock it out of the park from here it's you that i'll be cheering on mate so well done and, and thanks thanks ed